Welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, today we are talking about our late co-host Lise Van Boxel's newly released novel Warspeak, uh, available through politicalanimalpress.com. You can order your copy there. And we have uh, Michael Granke, tutor at St. John's College Santa Fe, a colleague of Lise, to help us uh, work through this book and introduce it to you, dear listener. Michael, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me here. Uh, Michael also wrote the introduction to Warspeak, uh, which is helpful to have somebody on the pod who is intimately involved with the work. But to tee it up, we're actually going to have Jeff give an overview of the book. So Jeff, all you. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, this is a challenge for me. This is a comprehensive book, and it's a book that I think I have a beginning of an understanding of, but lots of questions about too. It is, I think, a kind of novel, but it's also a close reading of a book that, Le- uh, that Nietzsche wrote late in his career, The Genealogy of Morals. The book that Lee's wrote, War Speak, is broken into seven chapters, and each chapter follows fairly closely with some di- uh, digressions, uh, the argument of the three essays that make up the genealogy of morality. But the book is not a typical academic monograph, even though it's a close reading of another text, a text by Nietzsche. It is written in a very invigorating style, and it's not, I think, overly concerned with dotting all the scholarly I's and crossing all the scholarly T's. Instead, it is almost exclusively, I think, focused on the fundamental question for the book, which is, what is nihilism? And how does Nietzsche overcome it? How does Nietzsche uh, have or claim to have a victory over nihilism? And so we get a book that is, I think, both concerned with a, a matter that's of concern to us today and written in a very invigorating and exciting style. And Lisa's just primarily concerned with exposing the logic in the movement of Nietzsche's confrontation with nihilism and eventually uh, with the human type that is able to overcome nihilism, how that type comes to be. So that by way of an introduction, uh, Michael, is there anything that we should add to that or is that good as a start? It's a fine start, so let's go forward. Well, then why don't I ask you this? Uh, The title is War Speak, and that title should be of interest to listeners to the Combat and Classics podcast because we are interested in the relationship between war and the great books. Can you say a little bit about what you think Lise meant by that title? Yeah, Lise, I think following Nietzsche, thought that humanity for a long time, perhaps for more than 2000 years has been subjected to an unacknowledged war. That is a, a subterranean psychological attempt to assault everything that's noble and high in humanity. And war speak is the language that's appropriate to engage in a counter counteroffensive against this unacknowledged psychological war. It's predicated upon what seems to be Nietzsche's own superior approach to human psychology that that incorporates uh, considerations about the relationship between mind and body or about the non-distinctness of mind and body. So it's a kind of physio psychology as as the book presents it, that's meant to attack the attack on the high, 
That is, it's meant to be a counterattack, counter a kind of language that both takes what has been perpetrated on us, a certain subtle psychological un, uh, undermining of our capacity to like what is human and to appreciate what is human and to affirm this, this worldly human possibilities. And it, it tries to attack that, that long-standing devaluing of the world in order that we might come around to a condition where we could, in fact, look at ourselves and look at the world and be truly uh, happy about it, if I could put it that way. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, and and I, I think that's that's a great kind of uh, explanation of, you know, uh, dovetailing on what Jeff was talking about at intro to the book. Um, I guess my follow-up question to that would be something like, <clears throat> why, why is war speak necessary to do that? Why couldn't you have like, have a coffee speak, you know? What is the necessary, what is the necessity of this kind of aggressive title? Um, you know, to, to her kind of counteroffensive. I mean, w one thing I would say about it is, is, you know, I ought to be familiar, I think, to people who fought. If you're going to fight in a war, you actually have to behave in, in a way that's warlike. Right? So there really has to be uh, an attack. I mean, if you pretend that the other side is dealing fairly, if you, if you pretend that they are honest and that they simply have different opinions than you have and they're not attacking you and they're not attacking what you, uh, your higher hopes and what humanity might aspire to, then you're in a way mistaking the engagement. So, I mean, if you're talking to someone who's talking to you in bad faith, you need to respond in kind, at least to begin with. That's one part of it. The other part, I think, is just that there are virtues that belong to war, especially a certain kind of courage that I think least thinks is necessary to uh, animate the emotion of the, the kind of speaking. Because war speak is a plot for taking the way the world has been defined according to an ideal, which Nietzsche identifies as the ascetic ideal. It's essentially an, an ideal that denies all of our natural urges and takes as its model, I think, being dead. But that model is embodied in speech and in thought as belonging to a picture of another, another world that doesn't change the way our world does, that's full of imperishable beings and portrays our world as a world of just to be gotten through. I would say, in order to get to the good things that belong to another world. That presentation needs to be undone because it, I, I think this is somewhat at the heart of the, the battle that, that Nietzsche engages in and that Lise explicates and, and engages in herself, is that there's been a long attempt to try to convince you that what you have and what you can do and what you are, your very nature, as it were, the, the things that you feel, the things that you want to do, that they're wrong, that you're essentially 
a wrong kind of being, and that another kind of being is right. And yeah, that, that makes sense. It, yeah. no, it, it's, 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 it sounds like something, you know, I just did a, a Sun Tzu podcast for the Partially Examined Life, and it sounds a lot like know yourself and know your enemy and you will win, uh, you know, a thousand battles. So let's, let's try to talk about our enemy here. Let's try to talk about nihilism. Like, what is it? Uh, I think for, for a lot of our audience and for me, um, my introduction to nihilism was uh, in The Big Lebowski. And, and that was also about the extent of my study of nihilism as a topic. So perhaps <laughs> we could identify what the enemy is uh, and, and then we can understand why she requires war speak to combat it. Yeah, I, I, want, I want to say, and this nihilism has a long history of attention, <laughs> I would say, and probably is often identified with certain kinds of Russian teachings that teach us that there is no real truth in the world and therefore there's nothing that orients our behavior and belongs to an old motto that Nietzsche sometimes quoted, nothing is true, therefore everything is permitted. But the nihilism that least really attends to is uh, not the, the thought that nothing is true, that one might try to address, I, I would say, on the, on the level of theoretical reasoning, for instance, to try to demonstrate that truth is available to us. But instead, a kind of de evolutionary development of living under the pressure of interpreting the, this world that we live in according to an idealized, purified, holy world that we don't live in, that makes this world seem corrupt, deficient, sinful, and uninteresting, right? Because there's no, in, compared to what one can get in the afterlife, there's nothing you should want in this life except to get through and get through well to get the rewards of the afterlife. But that makes us weary and dis, despairing, I think, of any purely human project, anything that's of this world. That's the, the, the face of nihilism as, as Nietzsche identifies it in the genealogy and as Lee describes it. It's that human beings have become weary of the possibility of any human improvement, any human, what, what he calls any human future that's real and that would be satisfying to us. And that utter weariness is, I think, best uh, manifested when we encounter what we might call the boredom of modernity. It means that we live in a situation that doesn't satisfy us, but we know of nothing else that we actually want to do. No change that we would make that would seem to us to be worthwhile, really justified. And you know, you see it, I think, in, in, in modern life very often when people just say, what does it matter what I do? But that's a real weariness and giving up on any kind of human project, any future that we might do ourselves. This is really helpful, I think, in indicating the um, reason that the prospect of a victory over nihilism is so interesting to us and should be of interest to our listeners, too, is that it's not just a question of um, responding to a particular narrow, say, religious view about the afterlife, right, that might be held uh, explicitly by only a few people. Uh, but it really is an attempt to address what I think is a pervasive sense that a lot of people have, that the various goals and pleasures that they identify in life 
even when they pursue and achieve them, turn out not to be meaningful. Um, and you know, for our listeners who are in the military community, dedication to ideals that one begins to have doubts about, uh, to wonder whether they can really justify that kind of dedication. I think the project of responding to nihilism is really a project to try to respond to all these sorts of difficulties that we're facing now, the suspicion that there's nothing out there that's really worth doing. This seems to kind of come back, there, there's, there's two interesting, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things in the book, but the, the book, you know, right on page one, um, you know, she makes just the kind of introduction of, uh, you know, what Frederick Nietzsche thinks of the human being. And she has this line that is that she kind of elaborates on throughout the book. Um, but it is, uh, we can infer that philosophy is the study of souls in their genealogical aspects. Philosophy is genealogy is psychology. And then on page 13, she quotes beyond good and evil. Um, and she talks about the idea of philosophers and philosophy. Um, and Nietzsche, she, uh, quotes Nietzsche here, gradually it has become clear to me that every great philosophy so far has been namely the personal confession of its author and a kind of involuntary and unconscious memoir. Also that the moral or immoral intentions in every philosophy constituted the real germ of life from which the whole planet, from the whole plant had grown. Now, the idea of genealogy and the idea, the metaphor of, of a plant um, really kind of struck me here because I think what we're talking about, I think what Nietzsche potentially is talking about and what Lisa's talking about is that philosophy tries to be, and, and nihilism tries to be very concrete, even in its nothingness and doesn't allow for growth or change or what I would maybe shorthand just call evolution. But it seems to be that we as human beings are attracted to the concreteness of certain philosophical truths. And I feel like to a certain degree, she's calling for, you know, looking at the genealogy, the progression of philosophy, the evolution of philosophy, and having the courage to look forward um, and to try something different um, and to evolve as human beings and evolve as thinking beings. Um, and so that idea of a plant uh, you know, bearing fruit of something growing, um, procreating and dying, you know, just really struck me because that's what we see all around us. The entire natural world is like, Hey, this is what happens. This is life. This is existence. Things grow and they procreate and they die. And yet for some reason, it seems like we want philosophy to be very, this is how it is and it doesn't change. And so I guess I'm just wondering, like, you know, am I, am I kind of reading the thrust of Lise and the thrust of Nietzsche, Nietzsche correctly that it is to some degree the kind of anti-Platonic ideal of permanent forms, um, the anti kind of Christian idea of an everlasting and eternal um, kind of heaven and a moral code around that, um, you know, is, is that kind of what's, what's in here? The idea that everything changes and everything evolves uh, and we as thinking beings need to not only change with that system, but can potentially actively change that system as well. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, every aspect of your summary is um, 
is what the book is driving at and what Nietzsche is, is saying. Uh, so yes, there is an attempt here to resist both the Platonic and the kind of uh, Christian metaphysics that regard uh, beings as things that do not change and that look for final answers in a philosophy or a religion. Um, but there is this nuance that I actually find uh, interesting and hard to understand. There's also a kind of durable good in Lisa's account. So that if you study genealogy, philosophy, psychology closely, you see that there's a durable um, good that is shared by living beings and especially by human living beings that is superabundant vitality. And so it's not like there's no um, overarching framework. It's not like anything can come from anything in the study of genealogy. Certain things come from certain things and they all um, have as a kind of formal good, as I understand it in common, uh, superabundant vitality. And so things that count as real evolutions, uh, evolutionary progress, uh, conserve or even enhance, expand this vitality. Um, so there is that durable uh, principle. Yeah, I think you're right also, Brian, to sense that this is anti-Platonic uh, and anti-Catholic or anti-Christian generally, in the sense that both the, the version or the understanding of Plato that understands there to be something like idea land, that is a realm of unchanging, self-persisting forms or ideas, and that's where thought derives its notions from, that's, I think, both opposed and, and rejected. <laughs> and the, the same sense that the Christian teaching does teach that there's an other, another realm that's unlike our world, that is, that is unchanging, persistent, eternal. It's, I think, least tries to portray life the way you did. I mean, life is ever-changing and intrinsically oriented toward growth. So intrinsically oriented to evolve in her sense. Not evolution, I think, for her is a touch word, a touchstone. She thinks we we almost all believe in evolution, but we don't draw the necessary consequences that evolution has. That is that we live in a world that's um, changing in the sense that all the beings that come into being are modifications of the beings that already existed. And that that's what, what is in the world for us. And that's how we have to understand them, not, not in some sense of as permanent forms. But it also has a kind of set of consequences that there would be something that it's, that it's not random change. It's change that's oriented according to a principle that's embodied in every living being that it wants more. It wants to do things to express it, its capacities maximally. And therefore it's oriented towards what uh, Jeff, Jeff Black was saying, a super, a super abundant vitality, not just life, but life that exceeds the surroundings that allows the being to do what it, what it wants to from its own internal principles and to overcome the proximate obstacles to its action. Mm -hmm. And being alive that way is what is presented as fulfilling. And that's an ever-changing spectrum of possibilities. That is what is available 
into superabundant life at one point in time might be exceeded by what's available later in the course of development. And that's, I think, what the book seeks to encourage. The ascetic ideal, which is understood to be the ideal that both rules, I would say, in the platonic world of idea land and in the, the Christian afterworld, seeks to make living beings minimize the aspects of themselves that are alive. The ascetic is like these, these saints that starve themselves, that don't indulge in various pleasures or minimize their pleasures in life, minimize the way their bodies distract them, that deny themselves all sorts of natural urges, right? maybe even scourge themselves, all in an attempt in a way to be closer to that other world. Right? But that is, I think, and this is where Nietzsche really sees, that means a rejection of this world. And this book, Morspeak, tries to give us a counter-ideal, a rereading of the world, a renaming of it. It takes what uh, the prior tradition has, has called things and tries to either subvert the names that have been given to things. So there's a whole bunch of renamings in the book that try to, to take control of the way we think by taking control of our language and directing us to think differently about things by changing the meanings of names or of giving new names to things. There are, there are innovations in language in the book as well, all in the, in the direction of trying to make thinking itself, reading and interpreting a kind of shaping of reality that is a way in which a kind of speaking conducts a war that can overcome this negative attitude toward the world and give us a positive attitude toward the world, something that we could put our will into that we haven't previously had. So, so I have a question about that. Um, on page 40, um, she talks about like the invention of, of moral rules. Um, and she, she, she quotes uh, genealogy of morals above this, but then she says, it is not accidental that Nietzsche can look uh, to the ruling class in ancient Greece to elucidate the original concept of the bad. Spontaneous valuators necessarily rule as kings or aristocrats in any political regime that emerges out of a pre-political condition. This is because such political orders, like the original concept of the good, are unprecedented and thus and must therefore be proactively generated. The first regime seems to be generated simultaneously with the first meaning of the original concept of good. In naming themselves as the good, proactive evaluators implicitly give voice to their sense of their right to rule over weaker human beings. So let me, I'll sum that up for our readers. And it, it, it reads to me like she's saying, like whoever comes up with the moral code um, first is moral um, because they created it. Now, it might not be moral in the whole sense that we think of morality, but it is their invention in this new political system. Uh, they came up with it. They were the first adopters of it. Um, and so they get to decide what's moral and what isn't. So I guess my question is something like, why is that kind of bad if Lise and Nietzsche are trying to do the same thing? Yeah, I think I can, I can take a, a stab at it maybe um, by pointing out just what I take to be an implication of the genealogical procedure um, the simple thing would be um, if morality comes to be, 
it comes to be out of what is not moral. And that means that uh, the question of whether its origin is bad is a funny kind of question where the, uh, there's a kind of circular reasoning going on or where there's a kind of um, snake eating its tail uh, because the, the notion of bad that you're judging the origin by is something that emerged and it wasn't, it wasn't present at the origin, right? So I think that the challenge that Lise has to um, meet here is she has to give an account of how something that's moral comes to be out of something that really isn't moral. Um, or only in a kind of incipient way is, is moral. And she uh, uses that phrase spontaneous evaluators. I think that's her formula for um, whatever it is that's occurring at this moment where morality comes to be, where a human being first uh, judges uh, himself good and judges another being who's different from himself as bad. And then sub subsequent mor moral uh, judgments are going to be um, developments of that origin and will always retain, or at least for a long time retain, some flavor of that origin in their development, right? And so that's how the, the genealogical approach, I think, um, directs your attention to certain features of early moral behavior and prohibits you from raising other kinds of questions because they don't make as much sense as they would if morality were a permanent standard. Yeah, some of the story that's told there by Lise about the origin of, of morals, and particularly in this case of the, the first original concept of the good, I think is predicated upon the thought that only, only beings that have a kind of mastery of themselves and mastery of the surroundings really have the capacity to produce something new in the world. Otherwise, what you get is a being that's stimulated by the outside to react against it. And that's not new. That's working within the, the framework of what already exists. So in order for morality to come into being, there has to be some new, something new if it wasn't already there. And I think the, the way in which she describes something new coming into being is that there are certain human beings who have on a very primitive level, this is, this is clearly a prehistoric story. That is, we, we should be thinking about humanity in this case, possibly in terms of uh, Greek aristocrats, perhaps, but probably more uh, human beings who existed 100,000 years ago or 700,000 years ago where some group only loosely organized, only loosely social, but having a lot of vitality and having a certain kind of superior mastery of their own urges and drives that enables them to overcome another group of human beings who are less, less, less good at war, then comes to live with the people that they've conquered and starts defining things. And they define the good first and foremost out of their, their sense of themselves. So this is a, a kind of, um, it's spontaneous in the sense that looking at themselves, they approve of themselves, they feel good about themselves. They're not very thoughtful human beings, right? They're just some brutes that won on the battlefield, like over some other people who weren't quite as well organized or quite as warlike. And they've got those other people under their thumb now and they're living together and, and they're starting to form a society 
And so they start to develop a language that fixes terms and that enforces a code of behavior and a designation. And first and foremost, they look at themselves, say, we, are, we like ourselves, we are the good. We're the real thing. And then they look at those others that they've beaten. And really what they mean when they say they're bad is that they're not like us. They don't even really think about the details very much. It's a very primitive humanity in a certain way that has very little even self-consciousness yet. Because they have very little that has thwarted them in the world, very little that has developed their own necessity to be thoughtful about themselves. They're used to giving commands. They're used to enforcing their will upon the world and especially upon their weaker neighbors. And that's where, so this is the, the sort of story of the origin of society and the origin of morality coming together at the same time. And probably the, the beginning of the seeds of the origin of human self-consciousness. So this is, she ends this chapter, um, we're, we're, we're not going to go through this chapter by chapter. We're just jumping around. So, but, I, but I, she ends this chapter um, entitled The Genealogy uh, of Morals Begins, which is only chapter two, with, with this paragraph. Given that the typological designations Nietzsche employs are liable to being misunderstood, we may wonder why he employs them. He likely does so because every regime in which the noble human type does not rule nevertheless depends on this type's morality. This is true even where reactive morals are dominant, since these morals must be derived from the noble concepts. Every regime and all moral language, therefore, point explicitly or implicitly towards their origin in the physio-psychology of the noble type, of which the archetype is the warrior. Thus, the true moral typology returns the warrior to the helm of humanity. So this is, this is again, where um, I feel like Lise is potentially contradicting herself. Um, in in putting someone in charge um and saying that he, the person you know whether it's the warrior or, or whoever it is creating a moral framework and imposing that on somebody else whether it's good or bad morals in some sense of those words um it's still imposed and 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 uh, You've, you've, Michael. I've, I've kind of counted because you did it once and then you did it two more times. You keep using the word language, and when you've, and you've talked about kind of genealogy and evolution in terms of that word language, and, and, and what I, what I love about language, um, at least English, is like nobody's in charge of that. It just kind of happens, and people just use words that are useful and discard words that are not useful, and it all happens spontaneously. But it seems like Lise uh, in this chapter and maybe in the book writ large is kind of asking for a similar thing that Plato asked for, which is like a philosopher king, um, you know, somebody to be in, you know, she uses the word, the, thus the true moral typology returns the warrior to the helm of humanity. And I just wrote a note there, like, why does humanity need somebody at the helm? Um, so I'm wondering, like... Am I, am I stretching her point too much by saying that she potentially wants a super vitalistic warrior poet philosopher king? Uh, or or um, am I mistaking her um, and Nietzsche's kind of the role of change in their doctrine and the role of genealogy or evolution in her doctrine? Well, there is, I think, in her argument, a, law, a large... Um, component of sensitivity to what is needed now. Um, 
her argument kind of precludes an answer that this is what will be permanently needed or this is a, some kind of um, final answer for humanity. Um, but what is needed now, I think, is uh, made necessary by um, the crisis that nihilism is putting human beings into. Um, and so m very many things that um, can be put to good use have come to be as a result of the spontaneous uh, development of language as you describe it, right? Or the unhelmed development of language. Um, we're kind of at an impasse now where nihilism has uh, filled the world and filled most of us. And I think the hope is that uh, a certain kind of human being can get us out of that. Uh, and that is what it would mean to give uh, the helm of humanity to uh, something like, although not exactly like a warrior philosopher, uh, as the next step. Um, I think in the context that you're reading from, the helm is probably the, the helm of the, the origin of morality, and that something about that origin is retained in all subsequent forms, or many subsequent forms that morality takes. But it's true that she wants a kind of return to uh, having a certain kind of human being uh, giving the example uh, to all of humanity, um, precisely because of the severity of the crisis that we face. But I would have thought the argument when it points to the persistence, uh, the durability of the superabundant vitality as the good for any living being, that it points to the warrior in this sense. Those original, very primitive conquerors of their neighbors were uh, I would say they were masters of themselves. They didn't suffer uh, from their own internal conflicts and tensions so much that they were dominated by them. And they were masters in their crude way of their proximate surroundings. And that's a, that's a kind of model in a very primitive way of what's meant by superabundant vitality. Lise makes a kind of argument that that's the only kind of human being you can get a real paradigm shift from. It's the only kind of human being that you can get something that is what they want rather than something that's a response to some condition of the environment. So I think it's, it's right to say, for instance, about language, that it's part of the evolutionary mix. Words and the concepts and meanings that attach to them are part of partly in play in evolution. But I think the, the, the argument about the sort of secret war that's been, been waged on behalf of the ascetic ideal or with the, the ascetic ideal by a certain kind of reactive type of human being against every human being that's healthy and, and has higher aspirations. That, that argument, I think, tries to expose that the way language develops for us and the way our thoughts develop are not random that they, they come to us very much framed, sometimes end-framed by someone who secretly inoculated us with a thought that we can't get away from, partially because we don't notice it when it's done. And it dominates our thinking and it frames our very conceptual possibilities. And the, the turn to war speak is some attempt primarily, I think, to offer an alternative and to undo a lot of that, well, one could say really thought control of humanity. I, th I think it's right to say about um, 
shaped evolution is that when Lee says the warriors return to the helm, she, she means that if there are going to be new things that emerge into the human set of human possibilities, they must come from a being that is fundamentally healthy, that acts out of its own internal principles and not out of a response to the environment. And that's the only way we get new things. Otherwise, we say we stay with what we already have. We have variations to it, which means even if you rebel against something, right, you're, de you're defined by the thing you're rebelling against. The form of your rebellion takes that. And the question really would be, what if you won and you could start from scratch? What would you do? But that's exactly the condition that belongs to a human being that has a certain degree of power that renders it immune to the environment so that it can make a beginning that is really of its own making and not just um, imposed upon it from without. So this is helpful because it, it um, gives a kind of answer to a difficulty that I repeatedly have understanding Nietzsche's and now Lisa's teaching as well, which is that if um, it's a, a fact of living things that they are changing continually, um, then doesn't it suffice just to wait for human beings to overcome uh, the problem of nihilism, right? Because change will continue. That's what living things do. And sooner or later, there'll be a solution so that encouragement and war speak are not necessary. Uh, there's some human possibility that is just going to grow uh, spontaneously, as it were. But it sounds like nihilism is really posing a danger. It might be too far to call it terminal, but a danger of long time stasis uh, in the human species. Yeah, I want to say, you know, there's maybe a, a difficulty with the word spontaneous, which Nietzsche uses and at least gives a certain kind of meaning to, 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 to distinguish the, the idea from something that comes into being out of nothing, which is, I think, theologically and philosophically often the meaning that spontaneity has, that something comes into being out of no prior antecedent. That Nietzsche does not think that happens in our world. Everything that comes into being came from something else that was already in, in being. And what made it possible for it to become the being that it is, is the pre-existing conditions that allowed it to come into being. So this, what this means, I think, evolutionarily, if I could put it that way, is that we may have a possibility of developing within ourselves something that can overcome nihilism. This is what the book sketches, I think, and, and proclaims that at least Nietzsche achieves the victory and gives us a model and path for how to think about such a victory. But, it, and Nietzsche felt this as a crisis, that there's a possibility if change just happens, how would I say it? It won't be random because change happens only within the realm of the possibilities of the present. Whatever the present allows as possible changes, that's the whole ball of wax. No other changes could happen. So there's nothing spontaneous or random exactly. But there's nothing predetermined either. Amongst the possibilities, only some of them will be realized. Some of those possibilities will leave us with more possibilities afterward and greater possibilities. And some of those possibilities will close off some future possibilities and possibly diminish us. And I think that's the, that's the terminal worry that you Jeff is talking about, that we could, as a species, become less and less able to do anything. That is, we could degenerate, or as they used to say, devolve. 
we could change and be modified in a, in a condition that really wouldn't be reversible because we lose some of the, the capacity that we needed to reverse that change. So I, I, I want to say, usually I want to say, um, experiments that no one is guiding generally turn out to be kind of bad experiments. And just waiting for things to change in the positive direction, given the way they can change, is in general unlikely. And it certainly contains within it the possibility that one would lose opportunities permanently. Yeah, I mean, that, that resonates a lot for me in terms of, you know, and, and I think it, it should for our audience as well, because, you know, as a Marine Corps officer, it's hammered in your head, make a decision and act, make a decision and act. Um, it, it's not... Uh, just let it be and see what happens. You know, like, I, I don't think I was ever told that in my 17 years in the military is just like, well, you know, just something will happen. You know, uh, it is, it is leadership is predicated on that is you're in that position. Um, it's up to you to make the decision. And so it seems like to a degree lease is, is saying like, Hey, anybody, Hey, human uh, act. Like it is, there's nothing stopping you. And it, but it's almost, and this is where we kind of get tricky and, and, um, or not tricky, but an interesting kind of piece of, of what she writes about. And I'll, pre I'll preface this. I'm going to read, uh, another part of, of what she wrote here. Um, but you know, it's called war speak, um, which is something I had to kind of remind myself several times in when reading the book is that it's, it's not called war just war. It's not called war act. It's just called war speak. Um, because when I read uh, this, this part, and this is um, in chapter three, the slave revolt and morality, you know, I kind of underlined this and highlighted it and dog-eared it and was like, whoa. Um, because she, you know, she's talking about the superabundant being um, and, you know, this, this kind of, uh, you know, quote unquote, more primitive man. Um, and she, I'll read the whole paragraph otherwise, because I'm going to summarize it badly, uh, which my listeners should be used to by now. Um, but, uh, so let me just read the whole thing here. Uh, we begin a new path in its original meeting, meaning guilty conscience is equivalent to bad conscience, which Nietzsche describes as a most serious illness man was bound to contract under the stress of the most fundamental change he ever experienced, namely the founding of the first political regime. Immediately prior to this founding, vitally potent human beings lived in tribes or packs that are akin to wolf packs or lion prides. Appropriately enough, Nietzsche calls the beings who comprise these tribes beast of prey. They are ready, willing, and able to attack. Their tremendous vitality and the capacity for ferocious aggressive action that is inherent to superabundant vitality gives them the capacity to impose order first and foremost upon themselves and also upon others. Such conquest is driven primarily by an unconscious artistic drive to reform other beings in their own image. By this remaking or reformation, they expand their influence, which is to say they expand themselves. They appropriate what is foreign and thereby grow. Such expansion by appropriating the other and making it one's own is the way of all growing beings. Now, I read that after not reading the title of the book for 62 pages, and I just go, whoa. Like, so we're just going to like conquer people now. Like that's, and that's the only way to grow uh, such expansion by appropriating the other and making it one's own is the way of all growing beings. Now, 
is she is she threading the needle there and 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 just saying ideologically um you know she uses the the primitive tribe and beasts of prey imagery so right away i get a little bit like are we you know unleashing conquering you know beasts of prey to you know rule over the amoral and i don't think that's what she's doing so maybe you guys can help me understand what she's pointing to in terms of this uh you know appropriation um making it one's own in terms of ideas or or morals well let me do the easy part and then i'll leave the hard part to michael but uh, the the easy part i think is just to try to think seriously about what eating is um that we eat um almost exclusively though not exclusively uh things that were once living um, and it means that we turn to our purposes uh, and uh, make use of for ourselves things that had their own purposes or vestigial purposes and had some project in their life. Um, so just an acknowledgement, uh, and, and it's not just humans that do that. We're not uniquely bad among living things, but that's what living things do more generally. So uh, for me, a good uh, baseline and beginning point is just to acknowledge this aspect of what it means to be alive. And then to say, all right, well, what's the, the range of possibilities of exercising that appropriation? And, and this is where we touch on the, the issue that you're, you're raising. What might it look like politically? What might it look like now? Yeah, I, I don't wanna deny any of the, I wanna say it, the, the savagery of the image um, and it's literal savagery, if I could call it that. Although I think probably we fool ourselves a little bit if we think about wars of ideas and think that they aren't savage. Um, that is, it, dominating another human means body, owning them that way, as I think many, by the way, many religious slaves have um, noted doesn't touch your inner part so much and it's not the extreme of human ownership dominating what another person thinks and feels getting inside their head which is a, i think you did a podcast on cyrus the great if you remember the beginning of the, the first chapter of the education of cyrus it tells us as a kind of evidence that Cyrus had solved the political problem that there were people who lived in his empire who lived so far away from the seat of government that they didn't even expect in their lifetime to see a representative of Cyrus's government, much less Cyrus. And that they did everything that they did with him in mind, hoping to please him. That is a kind of domination in the soul. I think what the passage points out is that life in order to expand must expand into something that is if we're to be beings that grow and get bigger and more powerful we must expand into something we must take in material that wasn't ours before and make it ours and that's both intellectually and physically but the primitive example is actually ultimately less interesting probably if you measure the possibilities that emerge once we have advanced and complicated inner life and advanced and complicated minds. That is, 
the mind itself presents itself as a, a vista that has more to offer us in terms of expression, probably than the physical world does. And so there's, a, there's at least a tendency to move away from um, you know, grabbing your neighbor and enslaving towards something else, um, toward other ways of appropriating the world, making yourself more and bigger. But I don't think it would deny, it would never deny that grabbing your neighbor <laughs> is a way to express your own capacity and that there would be satisfaction in that. I think in the genealogy, the best example I can think of that is a, Nietzsche pays a lot of attention to this. He tries to show us that the, the legal systems that we use that punish other human beings for their transgressions proves that we like to hurt people and that we gain some kind of thing that feels good to us from the thought and possibly from the witnessing of, of a, someone who's damaged us being hurt in return. That's some evidence of this kind of uh, um, characteristic of ourselves that we don't like to look at. We don't like to think we like the punishment, but why do you, why does the family show up for the execution? In fact, why would the whole, does the whole village show up if you're willing to let them? It's because we really do take pleasure in us in asserting our power over others. And we have to own that, but we can probably advance to a point where that particular expression is not the most interesting and promising expression we could think of. And for so, instance, even just mastering a, mastering a pile of words and shaping them into a poem might be more, more satisfying. Yeah, I, I, the, I, I see what you're saying and it makes a lot of sense to me that it's just a different way, I think, to think about ideas, you know? Um, like I think I... I think Jeff and I were talking about Montaigne's an apology for Raymond Sabond, um, which I just kind of read for the first time recently, even though I'm a little uh, Montaigneac. But, um, you know, he just talk, he talks about ideas and he talks about his ideas and he says, all I do is just polish these and hand them on. You know, they're not mine. They're not anybody's. I just apply a little polish and then I pass it on to the next generation and they can do what they want with them. So the idea of kind of appropriating these um, or taking them and owning them uh, is just a different idea of ideas than, than I'm kind of familiar with. But I also think that, you know, I think she does make a really good case for um, an attitude of ownership towards those ideas, because if you, if you, you know, it's, if you have this delicate piece of porcelain that is not really yours, then you're going to be very careful with it. And I think that what Lise is potentially trying to do here is saying, no, that's yours. And yeah, if you break it, you buy it, but like, don't be afraid to break it. It's, it's, it's an idea and it needs to be tossed around and potentially have a few chips on it. Um, because you're going to try to reshape it uh, however you want to reshape it. And if it breaks, it breaks. That means it just wasn't a, a, as good an idea. So it forced me to kind of rethink how I think about these ideas that we kind of take for granted. And that, like you said, are kind of a, a subterranean part of ourselves, things that we just accept as true. Um, we're getting kind of close to the end here. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of jump to the last chapter and ask you guys a question about uh, this chapter, Psyche Airborne. Um, she has this line in uh, page 203. 
where she says to command one's future self is to create oneself. Thus by Nietzsche's super perspectival reading and writing of our, of our genealogy, mnemotechnics is indicative of an instinctual interge intergenerational and eons long project to create the human being who consciously rules and creates himself. Now this, this sentence <laughs> was like a nice little slap in the face for me after, you know, going through 203 pages of reading words like mnemotechnics. Um, <laughs> so I needed that. Um, and it's also very interesting because this comes at a time where, um, you know, Lise uh, was talking about Wagner and then shifted to Schopenhauer and philosophers. But I think that, you know, she, she only talks about Wagner um, in, in the prior chapter of the Warrior's Riddle. But I think that the idea of the artist is, is central to Nietzsche's themes and it's central to Lisa's themes. And so my question is something like, what is it about the idea of the artist as rebel that resonated with Nietzsche, that resonates with Lise, and that is important in kind of our human understanding of morality uh, and art? And why, why, why is it that, that either people are drawn to being artists as a sort of rebellion or that we look to artists in terms of rebellion um, because it also ties into, this is such a weird long question, um, but you guys, you guys, you're St. John's tutors. You're used to this. <laughs> just, just pretend this is freshman seminar and we're doing I'm the taking Iliad. notes, Brian. So. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Cause it's, it's, you know, more of the themes as we're talking about artists is, is, is I feel like central to Lisa's work, but I don't know. She doesn't dwell on it as much uh, as, because she talks about the creator and the created and how the, the thing created creates the creator um, almost as much as the creator creates it. And so I guess my question is something like, you know, what is the role of the artist in this super abundant vitality that she talks about? Right. Well, if I could make a couple of distinctions. So there, there are a couple artists. There's the Wagner artist uh, that Nietzsche and Lise going with Nietzsche touches on first. And then there's the poet philosopher who seems to have something of the artist about him uh, that gets touched on closer to the end. Um, and it seems to me that uh, the formula uh, artist as rebel is not bad, but it's not uh, entirely right because we want to distinguish as we have been in our conversation thus far between um, reacting and being proactive, right? So the artist as uh, reacting, the artist as somebody who takes on um, uh, personality suggested by others uh, is not the type that uh, Lisa or Nietzsche are finally interested in. Although there are things to learn from that type and you have to consider it and pass through it, I think by this account. Um, something like the, the poet philosopher on the other hand does seem like a lot closer to the, um, the final type that Lisa is interested in as a kind of solution, the possibility of this being as a kind of solution to or victory over nihilism. Um, and there, I think it is connected to that passage you began with. Uh, this is a sovereign individual, somebody who can uh, make promises and keep them, uh, and therefore has a kind of creative hand over his future self. Whereas I take it the artist in the earlier sense, the Wagnerian artist, um, habitually breaks his promises. Uh, that's my guess anyways. Maybe I'd say something about the... Uh, uh, question about what attracts people to artists or to being artists. And, and, and then I say something about the book, because <laughs> I think that's a, a somewhat separate question. 
it seems to me that human beings are attracted to, to having the possibility of being in control of things. Probably many human beings, most of their life, don't feel like they're in control. Art recommends itself, and maybe even in the rebellious form that Brian suggested, it recommends itself as a realm where you really can control things. You write a story, you determine what happens in that story. And it seems like you determine it without any restrictions, right? You make your characters have the, the properties you want them to have, and you make them suffer the things that you want them to suffer and win or lose according to your decision. And so it's, a, it's as if you were the maker of the world, you're like a god. On the other, and that might also represent, uh, recommend it as a form of rebellion because of course, if you share it, you, well, even if you don't share it, it seems like you've entered a realm of freedom that the uh, existing authorities don't control. And possibly they don't feel they need to control because very often they, they, they might regard art as harmless because they regard it as a, you know, drawing on soap bubbles or something like that. Of course, it's not harmless and, and uh, more, more prescient rulers understand that too. They know if they let the wrong plays get put on the stage, they won't be in power anymore. But what Lise presents is being, I think, a kind of artist with respect to the course of your own life. And it even begins with what, uh, where Brian began reading from book one, that philosophy is psychology. Our minds are not separate entities from the world. We're, what we think is not one thing and what is real is something else. But to some extent, what we think about the world determines what it is. That is, the world is ordered according to our conceptual array. We experience it according to the ideas that we have. And Lise proposes in some way, uh, I would say, becoming a gardener in your own garden, controlling the ideas that you yourself in inhabit. Reading and writing are understood as interpreting and putting into action according to your own artistic narrative the world you want to live in calling things what you want them to be and trying and actively trying to seek formulations and concepts that would make you live a, a positively affirmative life and, th and that that again is that's more speak right that is, Reading and writing the world as you want it to be, not not in some fiction, but in, in with every bit of reality as every other aspect of your life that you recognize as real. I think that's a great note to end on. So, Michael, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Jeff, always me. a pleasure. So you can pick up Lisa's book, Warspeak, politicalanimalpress.com. Uh, you can hit us up uh, if you have questions for our guests, combatandclassics at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Instagram, uh, the Twitters, the Facebooks. So hit us up, let us know what you thought of the episode. And if you get a chance to read Lisa's book, feel free to shoot us a note about that as well. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Thank you both. <laughs>